Hey, Chillingworth listeners, John and I want to thank you again for tuning in to our podcast. It's a project that we've worked on for many, many years, and we're thrilled to have been able to share it with you. Today, we'll present our last episode in this story, Electroshock Therapy. But it's not really the last episode. We'll be presenting an epilogue and more episodes that take us deeper into the story. Please subscribe to Chillingworth so you'll receive information about these upcoming shows. Previously on Chillingworth. We decided it was time. We'd, we'd had all we probably could get. I said, Floyd, you know, you're, you're, you're a funny, funny guy sometimes, and you know, you're a likable man. He said, thank you. I said, you got one fault, though. He said, what? I said, you kill people. And <laughs> it seems that no matter how, how bad men get, there's still a sort of a, a little germ of conscience and morality that they never can get rid of. Phil O'Connell could finally announce to the press how the series of arrests went down. O'Connell knew that nevertheless, the legal standard of corpus delecti still had to be overcome. A creech cell, it's designed for insane or ultra-violent prisoners who might ingeniously strip away a piece of metal, try to fashion some type of deadly weapon, and use it to slit a guard's throat. Welcome back to Chillingworth. They kept him in something called a creech cell. And the creech cell was a cell designed to hold the, I suppose you'd say, hopelessly insane. Basically, they put you in there naked, and there wasn't any way you could kill yourselves. The, uh, Stainless steel walls were spring-supported, so you couldn't run against them and bash your head and hurt yourself. Um, it was a solid stainless steel cell. Phil O'Connell was elated that the man who'd murdered the Chillingworths had been captured and was shivering in the Creech cell. To O'Connell, Chillingworth had been the heart and soul of the justice system. Thousands of other people all over Florida and the South had looked at the judge the same way. And to ensure that Floyd didn't continue to pursue Harry Housen's suggestion, the Sheriff's Bureau told Floyd if he revoked his promise and demanded a deal, they'd charge his wife Peggy for her involvement in insured capital, which could lead to a three-year sentence. I think he did receive threats from them that if he didn't cooperate, they'd go after his wife, Peggy. I, I believe him in that regard. I don't think he had any reason to lie about that. In the summer of 1960, Floyd had sent Peggy home from Brazil to visit insured capital. Peggy had then spent a few weeks in the company's Orlando office, but not to manage the crooked outfit. Her sole purpose was to go through both sets of the company's books and figure out how much it had taken in 
and how much of that total should have gone to Floyd. She didn't know insured capitalists fleecing people, stealing their life savings. She spent a lot of her time in the office playing cards with her in-law, Jack Crane. It didn't matter if Peggy was innocent. The threat Henry Levern and Ross Anderson used against Floyd, the threat that Peggy would do time if Floyd didn't cooperate, felt completely real. Back in Melbourne, Floyd had decided he would finally atone for his sins when he was presented with the sad truth that the Sheriff's Bureau had recorded him, describing the Chillingworth murders at length. That seemed to be important to him, especially when he agreed to confess and testify against Joe without a deal. Now, as Joe's trial approached, Floyd still wanted to testify, in part as an act of contrition. But after talking to his former lawyer, Harry Housen, Floyd realized he might not have to pay such a high price to atone for his past. So Floyd made a proposal and a letter to Peggy. He wrote the letter from the Palm Beach County Jail. Peggy was in Augusta, Georgia, where she planned to stay indefinitely, with no intention of ever going down to Florida for Joe's trial. This is a letter from Floyd to Peggy, dated February 13th, 1961. Dearest Peggy, I have a very difficult decision to make. In fact, I will not make it alone. Last November, I made a decision alone. I hadn't heard from you in three weeks and had to make it alone. At the time, I thought this was an irrevocable decision, but Harry Housen came here. Harry found a way to legally throw all these charges out the window. It would mean this. Within two to three years, I could lead a normal life free, but it would also mean trouble for you. Harry says for insured capital, you could not get over five years, which would mean you would be free within two years. Now I know this is not a pleasant thing for you to think of or face. What it really comes down to is this. Do we both have our freedom and live as people within the next two to three years? Or is it a case of me going to jail for something I didn't do and God only knows when I will be free again? I know they will prosecute you as hard as law allows in revenge. If it wasn't for that, I know what I would do. I love you so very much, my darling. I leave this decision to you. I hope and pray you decide right. You hold our future in your hands. Either way, I will always love you more than anything in the world, including my own life. If you ever doubted my love for you, you have the answer now. How many men would leave this decision to their wife? Forever, Floyd. Floyd was indeed asking a lot of Peggy. Spend two or three years in jail for something you didn't do so that I won't spend the rest of my life in prison or possibly get the electric chair. Peggy responded to Floyd that he was asking her to essentially make their son an orphan. So the answer was negatory, Floyd. I won't go to jail for you. Of course, Floyd could have gone ahead and revoked his promise to testify against Joe in spite of Peggy's answer, but he didn't. Floyd did what Peggy asked. Floyd also thought that State Attorney Phil O'Connell and the Sheriff's Bureau were implicitly agreeing to do whatever they could to make sure he received a light sentence. Not life, not the death house, but maybe six or seven years. 
That made sense considering that Bobby Lincoln had already been granted immunity for the Chillingworth and Lugene Harvey murders. Floyd advised Phil O'Connell and Henry Levern that he was going to fulfill his promise to testify against Joe Peel. They immediately ushered Floyd out of his cold stainless steel cage, the Creech cell, inhumane quarters fit for a Victorian madhouse. Sure, they not only moved him out, they brought him whiskey, they brought him his girlfriend, they treated him like he was a pretty nice guy after he agreed to cooperate against Peel. Absolutely 180 degrees from where he'd been held. But that was only the first gesture of gratitude to Floyd. Floyd's captors wanted to make sure he remained comfortable in as many ways as possible. They set up a television in his spacious cell and supplied him with booze. Then Henry Lever did one last thing to make sure Floyd was as happy as any man in his position could be. This is from a letter Floyd wrote to his Brazilian girlfriend, Nazaré dos Santos, on the very same day he last wrote to Peggy. Minha querida Nazaré, I write this letter in case you are delayed in coming here. I hope you have already arrived here when this letter arrives. Your expenses will be nothing while you are here. Jim Wilbur has an extra bedroom waiting for you. Naturally, you will eat there too, and Jim will handle all traveling here in his automobile. It will be so wonderful just to see you and be with you again. It will soon be four months. It seems like four years. I have looked at your pictures and touched them until the Polaroid ones are almost worn out. I love you so very much and nothing that has happened or will happen can change that. I live only for the minute I can hold you in my arms again. As you can imagine, I wish so much I'd stayed with you in Brazil. Com todo minha beijos do seu, Floyd. Henry Levin would resort to almost anything to ensure a conviction. He had proven that in the Chillingworth case. So when Nazare borrowed money from a friend and bought a ticket to Florida to see Floyd, Levin did whatever he could to make sure Floyd could spend time with her. Once Nazare had made the 4,000-mile journey from Rio de Janeiro to West Palm Beach, Levern arranged with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department and Floyd's jailers to provide the couple with what most people would call a love nest. Actually, there's really no other term for it. An apartment on Floyd's floor in the jailhouse, normally reserved for visiting lawmen, became his bachelor pad in the weeks leading up to Joe's trial. He and Nazare rendezvoused many times in the snug little pied-à-terre overlooking Dixie Highway. And when Nazare wasn't with Floyd in the jailhouse apartment, she was with her host, Jim Wilbur of all people, the friend who had informed his ass off to the state. Floyd didn't forgive Jim Yenzer, but he somehow didn't blame Wilbur for turning on him because Wilbur stood to lose $15,000 if he had to pay the state back for Floyd's bond. 
We'll never know whether Floyd attempted to manufacture a blade while he was in the Creech cell. Joe's lodging in the Palm Beach County Jail was not as posh as Floyd's. Joe intended to participate actively in his own defense. But he really wanted to avoid a showdown in the courtroom altogether. So he came up with three schemes. Joe first tried to bribe Floyd into standing up or refusing to testify against Joe. Joe's wife Imogene and his brother Johnny arranged for Bob Sills, insured Capitol's pitch man, to visit Floyd in his cell to offer him the money needed to hire Harry Housen. Floyd, of course, refused because he decided at that point he had to testify to keep Peggy from being prosecuted. Next, Joe planned to saunter out of the jail with his cellmate, a 19-year-old doing a brief sentence for larceny. The plan was simply to walk out of the jail as visitors were exiting the building. Joe's companion managed to slip out and make it all the way to Jacksonville before he decided to head back to West Palm to finish the final months of his term. But Joe had already abandoned the plot. A few months before in Melbourne, Joe had resorted to a technique he'd always favored, murder. Joe had offhandedly told Yenzer to kill his brother Johnny Peel if Johnny happened to be with Floyd when Yenzer took him out. Fortunately for Joe, Johnny wasn't aware of this because Johnny allegedly did whatever he could to free Joe at great risk to himself. John was not altogether there. I think Joe consider him a, a bother. Joe convinced Johnny to smuggle cyanide hidden in a pack of Winston cigarettes into Joe's cell. Joe then tried to convince a trustee, a prisoner who could move about the jail freely, to douse Floyd's dinner with the poison. But the trustee not only refused, he turned the cyanide over to the warden. to say that now we have uncovered the poisoning effort. We have found that a sufficient cyanide was on a cigarette package which was delivered to a trustee in the jail for the express purpose of having it sent up to Florida Rose Apple. Press from all over the country and abroad descended on Palm Beach County to cover the news of Joe's arrest and the dark, disturbing scheme behind the Chillingworth murders. In Palm Beach County, where the Chillingworth murders had remained on everyone's mind for five years, the news didn't shock people who learned even a little about Joe over the years. Others refused to believe the former municipal judge, married to a sophisticated, intelligent woman like Imogene, a prominent member of the Junior League, could have planned such a reprehensible act. Paul Saffel and, and uh, Bobby Lincoln, these people, I don't even want to think about that. And so I, I can deal with the fact I, that they could commit murder, but I cannot accept the fact that Joe Peel could have contemplated murder. And in the black community, everyone was shocked to hear that Bobby Lincoln, the coolest, the most generous underworld operator ever, had gotten himself mixed up in the brutal Chillingworth murders. If he was the top black, Bobby had risen to be the top 
haunt you. Well, with Bobby Lincoln, Bobby Lincoln and the Lincoln family and his mother was a, they were big members at this church and they were just good people. Uh, got in there with the chilling work thing. That was the biggest news ever hit that town. Well, because of all of us saying, what is he doing from the Rhine there with a judge? That was big news. The whole town just went, just shut down. Just shaking his head. Man, how did Bobby Lincoln get into this? He had, uh, he had let down all the blacks in the city of So Now, what white America felt about what Bobby Lincoln did, who knows? Because well, they weren't dealing with us no how. But the, but the conks, who the people who dealt with us, they felt bad because that was one of us. And then for their family and the church and the wife and the everything else about that, it was just a blow to good people. Nobody ever thought that Bobby Lincoln would be in this. In the whole town, it was like a cloud. It was like a cloud of stigma. Over the Gulf Coast, man, they'd be talking. The barbershop, they'd be talking. Oh, that Lincoln boy, he got himself in a mess. How did he deal with them people? It, 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 it brought the town, Riviera, to his knees. Bobby was, um, was numbered upon in, in, in the big boys' uh, scheme of things. But they need, when, when, when Bobby first got involved with, with P on them, he didn't know that they were going to go out there and going to assassinate that man and his wife. He didn't know that. The trial was transferred from Palm Beach County to about 50 miles north to Fort Pierce in St. Lucie County. Because virtually every sentient adult in the area knew the gory details of the case. The lineup of attorneys in the case favored the state of Florida by a wide margin. Phil O'Connell, the wise, burly, and folksy state attorney, led the prosecution. I've always wanted the opportunity to introduce Phil O'Connell. Now, Phil O'Connell has been a friend of man ever since I've known him. Through his Rotary Club, Boy Scouts, Chamber of Commerce, and everything that's good for Florida and America, Phil O'Connell stands for it. It's my happy privilege now to present to you the Honorable Phil D. O'Connell. I offer my service and my time for the rest of my ability to practice law to assist law enforcement agencies in curbing the degenerate people who are now trying to make it all more dangerous for everybody to live. And I intend to do that, whether I'm state attorney or whoever may be, because I have been so indoctrinated to be hating, dishonest, thieving, murderous people. But I want to do my part to continue placing them where they belong. O'Connell's second in the trial was Eugene Spellman a brilliant young lawyer on loan from the Dade County State Attorney's Office. Joe had engaged an earnest young attorney from Jacksonville, Carlton Welsh, who'd been his frat brother at Stetson. Welsh was dedicated to getting his friend acquitted, but he wasn't as seasoned as O'Connell or as bright and versed in the law as Spellman. Not even close. Joe faced his trial with Carlton Welsh as his zealous advocate. His two former friends, Floyd Holzapple and Bobby Lincoln, had succumbed to pressure and agreed to give Henry Lovern and State Attorney Phil O'Connell what they needed to win a conviction in the St. Lucie County Courthouse in Fort Pierce in March of 1961. 
At this point, Palm Beach County was transforming, like most of the state, shifting away from a primarily rural culture. Pratt Whitney, which manufactured rocket engines for NASA, moved into Palm Beach County and hired thousands. Walt Disney explored the north end of the county, hoping to find the perfect site for his East Coast Magic Kingdom. And the area was slightly more progressive than the rest of the Deep South. For instance, as far back as 1938, Judge Chillingworth himself had taken steps as a jurist that at least reflected the possibility that someday institutional racism might shrivel and die. Judge Chillingworth, 23 years earlier, had ordered a new trial for four young black men because the grand jury that indicted them had been lily white. There are other signs of progress in the area. West Palm Beach had several black officers on its police force by the mid-50s. One of them, Boone Darden, later became the police chief of Riviera Beach. He was the first black police chief in the South. And Palm Beach County School Board had agreed to pay black teachers as much as whites after a long legal battle. And strangely, in the Chillingworth case itself, there were indications of change. Joe Peel's case would be the first ever in which a black man who was a co-conspirator in a murder trial had been granted immunity, unlike his white accomplices. But the changes were coming at glacial speed. The area was still segregated under law. And of course, there was evidence of prejudice and racial bias in the courtroom. Refined white attorneys would unapologetically rely on racial slurs to refer to defendants and victims alike. And this was even worse in St. Lucie County than it was in Palm Beach County. And in Joe Peel's case, the jury, the people who would determine the fate of a white man, would need to convict the defendant on the basis of a black man's testimony. This is a letter addressed to Bobby Lincoln star witness Judge Chillingworth case, the county jail, West Palm Beach, Florida, dated March 10th, 1961. You see, Bobby, if it had been only the judge, you might have a chance, but that poor, innocent woman. If you tell the real truth, I feel within 10 years you will be out, and lucky may only get 30 years to life. Bobby, hell is an awful thing, an awful place, as you know, for you have already started suffering a little of it. But that is nothing compared to what is coming if you lie on that witness stand. If you tell the real truth, I believe you will be freed and you could have your face made over by surgery and go elsewhere to live, get a job, live for Christ. Great happiness could be for you and peace. I'm praying for you even if you go to your grave. I will still pray for you, but it may not help then. Why should you trade your soul and go into the burning flames to protect and shield a rotter? Think it over, Bobby. Your time is running out. I will be vacationing here for another week, so drop me a line, General Delivery. F.B. Rancoy. Fort Pierce was a sleepy county seat along the Intracoastal Waterway. Like all the other cities in Florida with Ford in their names, it was once the location of an army outpost and the Second Seminole War. Every seat in the St. Lucie County Courthouse was filled on the first day and every day of Joe Peel's trial before Judge D.C. Smith. 
On Judge Smith's bench, Judge Curtis Chillingworth's name had been engraved, along with the names of all the circuit court judges who had presided in the courtroom. Judge Chillingworth had substituted for the St. Lucie County Circuit Court judge several times. This is Ralph Rennick in Fort Pierce. The first act of a dramatic courtroom drama began here today with the selection of a jury to try former West Palm Beach City Judge Joseph Peel Jr. with masterminding one of Florida's strangest murder cases. Peel is charged with hiring two killers to murder Circuit Judge C.E. Chillingworth. According to the killer's confession, the judge and his wife were abducted from their beachfront home at Manalapan, south of Palm Beach, nearly six years ago, taken by a boat four miles to sea, then tied with chains and dumped overboard. Although the bodies have never been found, the state believes the eyewitness testimony of the two ex-convict killers will be enough to convict Peel. The confessed murderers say that Peel paid them $2,000 to do away with Chillingworth. Chillingworth allegedly was about to crack down on Peel for the city judge's involvement in moonshine rackets. Chillingworth was a strong anti-rackets man. The trial was moved to the St. Lucie County Courthouse from West Palm Beach because Peel's defense attorney maintained he couldn't receive a fair trial in his home county. The small courtroom today was crowded with more than 100 prospective jurors and some 20 newsmen. There wasn't any room for the public. 63 jurors were finally selected, from which the 14 will be chosen to hear the case, including two alternates. About 50 witnesses have been subpoenaed, 36 for the prosecution, 13 for the defense. Peel was led from the ancient 55-year-old jail adjoining the courthouse. He was dressed in a gray suit and black tie. His face wore an unconcerned look. Peel is being kept in a maximum security cell on the third floor. He has maintained innocence in the Chillingworth murder. Peel is specifically charged with being an accessory before the fact of first-degree murder. Peel's dark-haired wife, Imogene, entered the court. She took a seat behind her husband in the first row. Other witnesses here include former Palm Beach County Sheriff John Kirk and Henry Laverne of the Florida Sheriff's Bureau. Both men were instrumental in cracking the case. West Palm Beach State Attorney Phil O'Connell enters the courthouse with his aides. O'Connell wants the electric chair for Peel. Peel's attorney is Carlton Welch from Jacksonville. He is Peel's former schoolmate and fraternity brother. Gentle Carter of West Palm is another witness. He is a friend of Bobby Lincoln, who along with Floyd Lucky Holzapfel are the confessed Chillingworth killers. Circuit Judge D.C. Smith is presiding over this trial, which may last two weeks. Smith today banned all picture-taking or drawing of sketches in the court or on the adjacent second floor of the courthouse. The bodies of the Chillingworths have never been found. But under Florida law, a man can be convicted of a capital crime if two eyewitnesses to the crime point the finger at him. Two men have confessed the crime, say that Peel was the brains behind the murder plot. Thus, the former West Palm City judge could receive the death penalty. A verdict is expected in about two weeks. In his opening statement, State Attorney Phil O'Connell couldn't contain his rage his utter contempt for Joe Peel, his former office mate, the son of his own good friend, a former client. O'Connell went through the evidence against Joe Peel, almost bristling at times at the defendant, 
this little weasel who for years had charmed him into believing he was a decent human being. Then Joe's attorney, Carlton Welch, presented his opening. Welch was really acting as Joe's co-counsel because Joe actually came up with much of Welch's strategy. Welch told the jury that they should acquit Joe because the very foundation of the prosecution's case, the notion that Joe had Judge Tillingworth killed to avoid losing his license to practice law, made no sense. Welch pointed out that Joe wasn't disbarred for committing malpractice by the judge who ruled on his case as Judge Chillingworth's replacement. In other words, why would Joe have Judge Chillingworth killed if by doing so he wouldn't prevent his disbarment? And Welsh reminded the jury that the four key witnesses testifying against Joe were motivated by self-interest, that their testimony would not be truthful. Welch told the jury that the only reason Bobby Lincoln was testifying was that he'd been granted complete immunity. Floyd was testifying because of an implied promise of leniency from Phil O'Connell and the Sheriff's Bureau, and because he was enraged at Joe, who had cheated him out of money and stolen his wife. Jim Wilbur would take the stand because he didn't want to lose the money he'd put up for Floyd's bond, and because of the reward money offered. And Yenzer was also taking the stand solely for financial gain. To sum it up, Welsh told the jury that the prosecution was relying on the testimony of scallywags, rogues, and low-count sidewinders. As his trial began, with his elegant, composed wife Imogene right behind him, Joe Peel exuded confidence and maintained the charm that allowed him to deceive so many clients, voters, judges, investors, and friends. We can show positively that Bobby Lincoln was not aboard the boat that night as he testified, and I saw Zappalus testified, and we can show that he was on land and directed that boat to shore. There were some people, intelligent people, maybe even members of the jury, who believed Joe could be innocent. Uh, in the final days, when it all began to solidify that he masterminded the murders and, and that Bobby Lincoln and Holsuffer were in on it. It's been quoted that they said, well, we did it for Joe. And I thought, well, now, wait a minute. Why would somebody want to commit murder for somebody else? Why would they want to do that? He probably had drinks with them, and they loved the fact that he was not a snob and that he would mix with them. Uh, and he might have had too much to drink one night and said, well, they probably said, uh, maybe perhaps, I don't want to write the script, but I'm just hypothetically saying, they may have said, Joe, how are things with you? And how, well, is that judge still after you? Is he still on your neck? Yeah, if I could just get rid of him, life would be beautiful. All of this went through my mind. And did these two men say, hey, we, we love Joe, he's been so nice to us. Let's just get rid of this judge. I don't think they meant to get rid of Mrs. Chillingworth. His attorney, Carlton Welsh, tried to counter Phil O'Connell's sometimes brash, imperious manner with his own courtly, polite demeanor. And in contrast to Eugene Spellman's remarkable command of the law, his ability to casually cite cases without peering into a book, Welsh would sometimes take a little time to articulate legal points before eventually saying what he needed to. 
Maybe he hoped that this would make the jury like him, the way some people like an absent-minded professor. But Joe seemed to be frequently thinking, what a fucking idiot my lawyer is. Joe's face sometimes contorted with regret and bitterness over his choice of Welch. To Joe, Welch looked like he couldn't defend his way out of a paper bag. O'Connell and Spellman made mincemeat out of him. And Joe's hope that the state's unsavory witnesses wouldn't convince the jury of his guilt vanished quickly. Floyd Holzapple and Bobby Lincoln testified calmly, earnestly, and they both appeared to have deep remorse, not strictly because they'd been caught. I think he needed the cathartic, and that's when he came out that people like him would, should be crushed like a cockroach. Bobby in particular impressed the white as snow jury with his steady, unwavering testimony. So did the state's other two key witnesses, Jim Wilbur and Jim Yenzer. Yenzer appeared sincere, not just out for money. Joe Peel took the stand in his own defense, but a visibly pissed Phil O'Connell tore him to shreds. He kept Joe on the stand for just a few hours. Then O'Connell, recognizing that sections of Henry Levern's surveillance recordings could actually work against the prosecution, chose to not even attempt to have them admitted as evidence. Joe Peel sat in the crowded little St. Lucie County Courthouse this morning, listened to the three-man prosecution team tell their version of how the five-year-old Chillingworth murder was committed. Fort Pierce Assistant State Attorney Charles Brown led off with the background of the crime. After a short recess, Miami Assistant State Attorney Gene Spellman made an eloquent summation to the jury. Spellman pointed out how the state had proved the corpus delicti, and they had proved Joe Peel's connection with the confessed trigger man, Floyd Lucky Holtzapple. Peel was a different man today from the self-assured, smiling Joe Peel of three weeks ago. Peel now looks pale, older, and scared. The jury found Joe guilty of being an accomplice to murder before the fact. No question, open and shut. But they asked the court for mercy, meaning that they just didn't want to see Joe Fry on the electric chair. Judge Smith sentenced Joe to life in prison. Now that the jury's ruled against us, now that they've ruled against me or against Mr. Peel, I have no criticism, I have no, nothing to say that, uh, to criticize the jury system because it's one in which I firmly believe. Mr. Walsh, if you had it to do over again, would you change the defense of your client at all? Well, in the sense that you, that you put it, I didn't really have a client as a lawyer has a client. I was, I was down here attempting to defend, as I thought, the principles that uh, I believe in, that I think every American should believe in. The, <clears throat> the principle that the jury 
stands between the individual, the rights of the individual, and the state. After he testified, Bobby was taken back to the federal penitentiary in Tallahassee to serve out the last two and a half years of his sentence for trading in illegal liquor, after which he'd be set free on the condition that he leave the state of Florida for good. I believe Bobby felt that he was sort of trapped and he had to do what he was asked to do to save, him, save himself. Unlike Bobby, Floyd had negotiated a plea with the state. Floyd against the wishes of Henry Lovern and Phil O'Connell, the two men most responsible for bringing him in, was given the electric chair. Floyd's wife Peggy, who hadn't made the trip to Florida to see him in months, promised to stand by him as he got ready for his transfer to death row at Rayford. Nazare dos Santos, back in Rio de Janeiro, also pledged to remain faithful to Floyd envisioning some miracle that would allow him to return to her at some point in the future. And no one was ever tried for Lou Jean Harvey's murder. That was the case that led to Joe's conviction for killing the Chillingworths. No reporters ever came to our door. There was a little article in the paper and that was the end of it. But we never really, no, there was no justice for Jean. I didn't know Henry Lovern until he came to Brevard and contacted me. To me, one of the best friends that a man could have. He and I thought alike. He was a, a good-hearted person. He was a pleasant person to be around. He stayed at my house, and we had his bedroom there, and my wife named it Henry's room. So He was a mighty fine friend and became one of my best friends. The night before Floyd was transferred from the Palm Beach County Jail to death row, he agreed to sit for an interview with Henry Lovern, which Lovern recorded, maybe because he intended to write a book about Floyd someday, maybe because Lovern knew it was important to understand the mind of a murderer, because it'd help him bring other killers to justice in the future. The two men drank a lot during their conversation. Well, that's pointed that one of the things that has puzzled me, really, just in my own mind, my own conscience, how, even during that ruthless period, you know, or the animal period, how could you be so kind on the one side, so understanding, and then yet on the other side, because I like people like to help Oh, it's not. But let me ask you this. Are you going to help me get out of this place? To be a human being? I'll do everything in my power. I'll do everything in my power. Hey, good. How are you? How are you, man? Pretty good. How are you? Fine. Fine. Nice weather. Beautiful weather. We're going to leave in the morning. Yep, you're going to lose me as a customer tomorrow. Is that right? Yeah. You better call me about seven. Why? You're going to call me at seven. Would you get me two eggs over easy? Sure. 
Floyd knew he was being recorded, and he spoke pretty candidly, but not quite as openly as he did on the Melbourne tapes. For some reason, Detective Henry Levern had a great degree of sympathy for Floyd and seemed to sincerely hope that he wouldn't be executed in the not-too-distant future. Levern was responsible for filtering the correspondence sent to Floyd while he was in the Palm Beach County Jail. He delivered most of it to Floyd. Sometimes, though, Lovern chose to spare his prisoner from the contents of a letter. This is a letter from a former neighbor of Floyd Holesapples, dated May 3rd, 1961. Dear Floyd, there's little I can say except that I feel deep compassion for you in these days. If it is any comfort, I think of you only as a gracious person, a kind and good family man from our days on El Prado. I wish there were some help I could offer to beautiful little Peggy, who has been so devoted to you and your young son. For what it's worth, I underwent a series of electric shock treatments some time back, and it was so quick I never felt them touch me. None of us is without fault. Let us hope and believe there's a beneficent and kind God for us all. The odds are harder on some in their beginnings. Maybe he has a way of working it all out in the end. I have a feeling you are resigned to your situation, and I wish you only peace. This is one of the letters that Lovern protected Floyd from. The following day, Floyd arrived at the gates of Rayford Prison about 300 miles to the north. As he entered, a loudish palooka of a guard, possibly the only law enforcement officer in Florida who would not have recognized Floyd on that day, asked him what he was in for. Floyd smirked at the guy and muttered, stealing apples. I survived. We all survived. Well, I didn't have any strong feelings one way or the other. I, you know, I wasn't there at the, the trial and uh, didn't hear all the evidence or whatever, but uh, I personally didn't have an opinion. I think my sister Anne probably did. She was vehement about uh, what should become of them. No doubt in her mind that they should be uh, uh, hanged or electric chair or whatever was done at that time. They should be put to death. So maybe she was the one who was right. But you see, we are not in position to have to say be the judge and the jury. See, the worst thing about that is that he'd have to answer to God. Chillingworth was created by Texas Crew Productions and Nighthouse Films. It's produced by John Moss, myself, Jonathan Payne, Rick Sykowski, and Brad Bernstein. Chillingworth is edited by Nicole Payne and Jack Nystrom.